0: Joe Egan and Jerry Rafferty, otherwise known as Steelers' Wheel, got signed in their teens and they immediately had success with the single Stuck in the Middle with You. The band's on-again, off-again lineup and their refusal to tour, however, led to a breakup two years later. This week, I'm joined by Punchline manager and Craft Services founder Jim Legrando to discuss this toe-tapper which saw a resurgence in the 90s thanks to a disturbing scene in Quentin Tarantino's classic film, Reservoir
1: Dogs. I from my face
2: I'm all over the place Clowns to the left
1: of me, jokers to the right, here I am
2: One hit is
1: all you need To make the money guaranteed And you can live off royalties For that
0: Never. and it makes all me, wonder. me wonder. It
1: a it one all
0: right man so I'm just gonna assume right off the bat you know a whole lot about Steeler's will am i correct
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I don't know if I know a whole lot about them. Like I'm not a Steelers wheel historian or anything, but I mean, I do know enough that I think that we can have a pretty interesting conversation. I, I,
0: I would think that maybe you know more about Steelers wheel than anyone, but I could be wrong about that. I only <laughs> say that because is it Jerry Rafferty or is it Gary yeah, Rafferty? I think it's,
2: I think it's J- Jerry Rafferty. You it's think like, it's Jerry? I've always pronounced it as such. So it's like Jerry with a G instead of a J.
0: Right. With Jerry Rafferty, who is half of Steelers Wheel, along with Joe Egan. I believe, I could be wrong about this, Jim, but I thought you told me at one point that Jerry Rafferty's Baker Street was your favorite song ever. Am I wrong about that? Mm,
2: I think you might be wrong about that. It's not my (laughs) favorite song ever, but it's a song that, like, it was something that There's, I mean, it's, it's always been like one of those songs that you've heard with stuff. I mean, in like, you know, there was like, it was on a Foo Fighters record, but it didn't have the sax thing. Or it's like, if you're trying to have a, you know, like a safe sax playlist on Spotify or whatever you can, not you can't not have one of those without Baker Street being on it.
0: Yeah. It's one of the most, it's probably the second most recognizable sax songs behind, is it Wham or George Michael? Careless Whisper. Careless. Yeah. Yeah. But for anyone who's listening, who doesn't know the the Jerry Rafferty, it's the song goes that's my best uh, sax impression that I could do. <laughs> but I didn't even know that Jerry Rafferty was part of Steeler's wheel. So I, I learned something right off the bat. Have you always known that, Jim?
2: No, that's so the shocking that you just had when you found that out is what I had back whenever I discovered all of that. It was like, I I had known Jerry Rafferty stuff prior to realizing that those were connected. So to me, stuck in the middle with you is one of those songs that I felt a trap to thinking it was always somebody else. You know what I mean? And I think that's something with it. Like, I guess it's that that people think it's a Bob Dylan song because of the way that that song is, is is like the way he inflects his voice in it. So it's one of those things like it's like, oh, you it's I found out it's this other band that turns out that they're called Steelers Wheel. And then I'm like, oh, the guy that did Baker Street is in Steelers Wheel. No wonder it must have been a great song or whatever like that (laughs) kind of a thing.
0: I love those songs that, you know, you think are somebody else forever. Like there's that one song, dude, there is that song. Everyone in the world thinks is Bruce Springsteen and it's not.
1: Are, Are you thinking of Blinded by the Light? No, 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 no. Are you I'm thinking of on the dark side from Eddie and the cruisers?
0: I think I think that's what it is, Matt. I think you're right. on the, how's it go?
1: It's uh, how's it going? I'll pull it up real quick. Yes. <laughs> 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 that's it.
0: That's the most Bruce Springsteen-sounding song ever, and it's not.
2: So wait,
1: wait, who is that? Who is it? It's not Bruce Springsteen? Right. It's John Cafferty and the Beaver Brown Band. Um, and <laughs> of course it is. And it's the song <laughs> that was written for the movie Eddie and the Cruisers. They also wrote the closing credit song for the movie Cobra starring Sylvester Stallone. And it also sounds like a Bruce Springsteen song. (laughs) It is. It
0: it is the most Bruce Springsteen. When someone told me it was only like last year that someone said, hey, that isn't Bruce Springsteen. I was like, what are you talking about? That is Bruce Springsteen. Nope. But yeah, this this song definitely has that Bob Dylan vibe. Although I would argue that this is a little more like pop than any Bob Dylan songs or something. I don't know if pop's the right word, but it's definitely like very straightforward. It's like
2: folky pop. It's so this is strange. When I was listening to that, I revisited the Steelers wheel album to, Think of, you know, other songs on there that aren't <laughs> stuck in the middle with you, right? You know, listening to it, I was like, man, this sort of sounds very, like, Beatles-esque, but not totally. But then it's mixed with this Dylan vibe. And then I read online that that's exactly what <laughs> that that Jerry Rafferty was always sort of pegged for prior to that happening. That he had, like, a Beatles-like... It was like, he has a Paul McCartney Beatles-like writing style with a mix of this. And I'm like, wow, that's an interesting... Interesting take that I actually got out of it, which I was surprised by because I'm so bad at pegging bands of what they sound like, I think.
0: Yeah, I I feel like I am sometimes too. But this song, obviously, I'm trying to think if I even knew the song before Reservoir Dogs. I had to have heard it before. But obviously, the very famous scene in Quentin Tarantino's Reservoir Dogs is what gave this song a huge resurgence, if nothing else. It kind of did the... Wayne's World, Bohemian Rhapsody <laughs> thing to this song, at least in my world. I remember in high school, in acting class, had to act out a scene from a movie. And of course I did this scene. <laughs> of course I did Mr. Blonde dancing around and cutting a guy's ear off to Steeler's Wheel. One of those, very, <laughs> very appropriate for high school. But one of the, the very notable things too in the movie is that you have Stephen Wright. He was the radio DJ. Who, who introduces and says th- that this song is Steeler's Wheel. So, you know, right off the bat,
2: everyone knew this was Steeler's Wheel.
0: It's a good song. Uh, I got to give it up for this song, man. This was a great, this is a great choice, Jim. Yeah. Oh, well,
2: thanks, dude. Yeah, it is a great song. And it's something I think it's always going to be like, I mean, not only is it always going to be connected because of Reservoir Dogs, but it just feels like it's something that it's always going to, I don't know. I don't see how you'd ever like not be feeling good listening to it. You know, 30 years from now, we pop out, I'll probably be like, oh yeah, still yeah. holds up.
0: Yeah. These guys are Scottish too, which I don't know, dude, that's like a constant theme on this podcast now is every fucking band is Scottish for some reason. (laughs) Uh, you know, we did the proclaimers we did, uh, Oh, I found out Delamitri is Scottish. Uh, like, I don't know what it is. And also, you know, in my experience in Scotland, it was kind of hard to understand people through the accent but then in the songs it's always so the lyrics are always so clear like there's not a word in this song that i don't understand i hear every word very clear you know especially clowns to the left of me jokers to the right here i am stuck in the middle with you which is
2: the hook i think that's great also i'd like to take a moment here that you mentioned that i think Clown should be a word that we bring back into the vernacular for referring to people. You know, like it's right. great. It's not derogatory. I mean, unless you're a clown, I guess it's derogatory to clowns. But <laughs> yeah, re- exactly. referring to people as such, I think, is a real great kind of no. Way I to love get it. Point
0: across. I love calling people clowns, and I think that uh, nowadays, sometimes you find out that things you've been saying have some sort of like origin that you're like oh damn I'm not going to say that knowing knowing that that meant <laughs> this certain group of people or something I, I can't think of anything off the top of my head but uh you know I, I guess the thing that I think of is like when I was a kid like calling someone a gypsy I didn't realize that that was like a right. a slur
2: <laughs> yeah totally Culturally insensitive, right? Yeah, you don't think yeah. About that stuff.
0: So I would never say that now, but there's a lot of I, every year. There's more and more of those things where I'm like, oh shit, I shouldn't be saying that. But <laughs> clown, clown, yeah, I don't know, man. I guess maybe you could offend some clowns, but that's more of something you choose to be. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
2: Dude, think... One of the it was totally unintentional physical comedy. I mean, it's not physical, but just the way that it worked in this world. As I back when I was in college, I went on this road trip with my friends. We played a gig. He was in my band and he had to go to his sister-in-law's wedding the next day. So we played this gig and we got done and packed all the gear up and left the bar and just drove to, we were driving from State College to Toledo, Ohio. And on the ways we were going there, it's like, you know, we're driving and it's because we left at like three in the morning or whatever, and we're going. And so like the, the sun is coming up and we're someplace. And I see this car coming up like from the... Like, I'm in the passenger seat, and I can see in the mirror, there's a guy coming up on the on the right. <laughs> I can see that this dude is dressed as a clown. <laughs> and as he's about to come into view, like, you gotta go, get a load of this clown. And as he <laughs> drives by, my friend sees this clown driving this car, and dude, I thought we might have crashed the car. It's so crazy <laughs> because... We literally saw this clown drive by, but nice. that's uh... <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's pretty good. Yo, so I'm looking at thing we always look at. It is a song peaked at number six on the Billboard charts, which right. makes me think that I probably knew this song before Reservoir Dogs. You know, I saw Reservoir Dogs pretty young, but I had to have known it. It was the 30th biggest single of 1973, 1973 being the year that my parents graduated high school. <laughs> Nice. I will note that. The number one best-selling single the year that this came out, because we like to take a look at what was going on in music that allowed this song to be popular. Although I kind of think this song could be popular now if it came out. I mean, maybe the production would be a little bit different, but it's still catchy as hell. But Tie a Yellow Ribbon Around the Old Oak Tree was the number one single of 1973,
2: which wow. (laughs) Yeah, I, that's got to have some sort of tie. I don't know all my uh, U.S. war history, but there has to be some sort of tie into something with that. And that's yeah, hard. I guess,
0: I guess so. Uh, but then some of these other songs, at least two of them that I see, uh, make sense and fit really well with this. One is "Bad Bad Leroy Brown" by Jim Croce, and also um, "We're an American Band" by Grand Funk. Those fit well with this song. But there was also some sick ass. R and B music, like "Let's Get It On" by Marvin Gaye, "Killing Me Softly" with his song "Roberta Flack," Stevie Wonder's "You Are the Sunshine of My Life," and "Superstition." Were both, you know, huge singles that year.
2: Nice, what a year!
0: Yeah. And otherwise, "Crocodile Rock" by Elton John, which I believe was a pretty early Elton John song, at least judging by that Rocket Man movie, if I remember correctly. <laughs> yeah. So, pretty decent year for for music, 1973. And I was, and if you think about what was going on in the world, I mean. Vietnam was still was still raging, and, and I think there was a lot of strife in the world. So I guess people needed some uh, some uplifting. <laughs> that would probably make sense why Stuck in the Middle with You would still be popular. And also, I could very easily see Stuck in the Middle with You being played in the movie soundtrack to people flying helicopters with guns. <laughs> I don't know. It's a, it, maybe it's a, the Forrest Gump influence or something, but I feel like that very easily. Could have fit right in, right? There.
2: Although in that movie, I think the song that was playing when they were flying helicopters was "Fortunate Son."
0: Yeah, yeah. Oh man, I love "Fortunate Son." What a jam. <laughs> <That's, laughs> you like "Fortunate Son"?
2: A, yeah, of course. I think we played. Now I was thinking, I was it. I was thinking something else, but no. Yeah, "Fortunate," "Fortunate Son" is a great credence song.
0: As far as this song goes, I, you know, we both dug into their catalog a little deeper. Had you done that before you were getting ready for this episode?
2: I had done it. Again, not being a historian, I'm not familiar comp- <laughs> sure with every like, single thing they have, but something I did notice, there's been this consistent thing of, on the, the Jerry Rafferty had this artist that did all of the album covers. So the album covers of basically every Steeler's Wheel album, and then almost every Jerry Rafferty album has been a drawing by the same person. And so I had gotten the album, but then it's like, I got a couple of Steeler's Wheel albums Kind of unintentionally, just because I had known from the Jerry Rafferty album artwork that it was all in the same family. So it was kind of like, I have a couple of them, but I don't have all of them. So I'm kind of familiar with most of the catalog. But I don't know if there's anything in the Steelers Wheel catalog that stands out as strongly or as in front as Stuck in the Middle with you does.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like I put it on. You know, I put the album, which was their debut album on, and I liked it. And then I, I kind of skipped around otherwise I, I and and put it on. And I think I like it. I think it's pretty good. But you're right. There wasn't necessarily something that really hit me from there. Uh, but, you know, once again, I only listened long enough to familiarize myself with Steeler's
2: Wheel. So some of the things that could have been helpful to what they had going on is, so so, there's such a tumultuous history of Steeler's Wheel. So Jerry Rafferty was a a songwriter and he was actually working on his own solo album when he met Rob, who was a player on that album. And then those guys like hit it off. And uh, I think his solo effort, like it was under some other name or something like that, but it just wasn't any good. And he was kind of like upset about it. And he was like, well, we wrote some, we did some good work together. Maybe we can team up and, and have this thing. And that's where Steeler's Wheel was born. And the folks that actually produced that first record, but as well as the other, there was only three Steeler's Wheel records. The first album is, uh, they worked with Lieber and Stoller, who are a songwriting team and a production team most famous for, they wrote Hound Dog for Elvis and Jailhouse Rock and a bunch of like R&B hits, like Poison Ivy and some stuff for like the platters and the coasters. It's like stuff from that era. And like Stuck in the Middle With You was their very last super commercial success.
0: Who's Rob? I thought Joe Egan was the other guy. Yeah, Joe. World. Sorry.
2: Rob, so, dude. Oh, okay. I, thought, <laughs> the reason I, said I thought Rob, Rob is,
0: was some other guy I didn't know dude, about. <laughs> Rob
2: Egan. I, this, is, this is not. Joe Egan. <laughs> Rob, <laughs> right. Joe Egan is the guy from Steeler's Wheel. Right. Rob Egan used to work at the Altoona Curve with me when I worked for the Altoona <laughs> Curve. That's <Nice. laughs> where that mistake came from.
0: Hey everyone, this is Tuck from Fit for a King in off-road minivan. Every week I bring you fun interviews alongside your favorite metalcore entertainers with my new podcast Get Tucked. Join me every Monday with bands like Counterparts, Crystal Lake, like Mods to Flames and many more. We play unsigned and undiscovered bands, deep dive into each artist's history, and of course provide the greatest breakdowns in current metalcore. Tune in to Get Tucked every Monday, out now through Sound Talent Media. Hello everybody, I'm Bruce.
1: And I'm Nolan, and this is the Corner of Gray Street Podcast. As longtime Dave Matthews band fans, we set out to create a podcast to dive deep into The corner of gray street okay
0: <laughs> any relation
2: i don't think so i mean okay. i potentially I, who knows i don't have any idea we never discussed it so i wouldn't know but yeah so i guess like you know with the thing so dude other weird Steelers wheel facts right so those guys so they made this album it did it hadn't even come out and jerry rafferty quit the band he was like you know yeah. I don't really think I want to tour. He has always had some sort of issue with with touring. It's like, I think he's like an artist artist and the fact that like he wanted to, you know, from everything I've read about him, he wanted to like write songs for the art and, and do it like that and felt that whenever you had to mix business into it, it like changed everything. I guess in a way, because I guess that's the stuck in the middle with you is supposed to be, it's written as if they're at some, it's like people at a music industry party. So it's like, you know, clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. It's supposed wow. to be like, I'm at this music industry party, and this guy to the left of me is trying to talk about this. And this guy over here is doing whatever, and it's all just bullshit. You know, isn't this funny? Right. And it was, and, and the whole Bob Dylan thing is it's supposed to be like this take on like, you know, Keys kind of like mocking him in a way, which is why it sort of sounds like him and stuff. And then, of course, people think that it is him. <laughs> But wow. it's not. but so, so anyway, so back to this, this little history lesson for you. So like he quit the band and the album comes out and so they put together, Joe puts together some other dudes and they become Steelers wheel minus Jerry Rafferty. Okay. And then the album takes off and that song, like this, like stuck in the middle, wasn't the first, I don't think it was the first single that came off of it, but I, I could be wrong. But by the time they had played like in another country, it had taken off. I guess it was out. I guess maybe it is was up because what happened was they started this tour with this other band they were playing in the Netherlands or somewhere and they found out that it was a top 10 hit in the U S and so they had to kind of go deal with that. And I think that somewhere in that mix, they convinced Jerry to come back and join the band. But then when he came back, the other guys quit. (laughs) So then it was like this whole mess. And I'm not exactly sure that they got to come over and tour and play, but I know that there was this big hole in their whole career because Jerry wouldn't play. And then, he left the band again, and I think that like the second, like they put they came together to put out the a, a second record, and then there's a third Steeler's Wheel record. But by the time that that re- I read that by the time that that record even came out, even even Joe had left the band. Like Jerry left the band again. It didn't exist, and the third record came out with the band basically not even existing. Like they had broken up before it even released, and that was like the we'll put this music out to fulfill our obligations. <laughs> Right.
0: Right. Okay. You know, it's got to be pretty wild to just find out you have a hit in another country. And (laughs) I'm sure that that would bring a guy back to a band for a little while. I'll never understand why when someone achieves that sort of success, why they wouldn't keep pursuing it. But then once again, not everybody is everything. And I've talked about this before, but not just because you're good at writing songs doesn't mean you're necessarily cut out to be a touring musician or cut out to be a front man or cut out to be a businessman. Maybe you just write good songs right. and, and maybe you're not even a cool person. Maybe you're a dickhead, but you, but you also... <laughs> But you also write good songs. So like not everybody can be everything. And I know a lot of people, probably myself included, try to be, you know, when, if you're trying to have a career in music, you try to be everything you play music, you write songs, you you're on the internet, you're doing interviews, you do a a podcast about one hit wonders, everything you could possibly (laughs) possibly do to uh, try to get your name out there and and whatever. But maybe, maybe Jerry Rafferty just wasn't feeling that man. Maybe he didn't want to do a podcast. (laughs)
2: <laughs> no, I don't think he would have done it because I think it's like so. As it kind of goes on with him, I guess I know. I know it's like we're kind of giving him. He's so of the two of Jerry and Joe, they had all those. There's the, there was the issues with the band breaking up, and then there was all kinds of like managerial stuff. Anyways, they were prevented from putting out their own new music until years later. And so, like right. Jerry had collected those things and put together, you know, a mix of stuff, you know, from what I read, and that was where Baker Street and his other stuff came from. And then he worked with a guy who was, he found some guy who he, want, who, who he thought could ma- help manage him after he got done with all that stuff. And so I guess it's like this guy listened to these tapes and was like, you actually have something great here and people like loved Steeler's Meal or whatever. And so like, let's see what we can do with this. <laughs> some weird fact I read was this manager guy was like, I took it to the head of whatever major label company to figure this out. And the guy was like, look, if I have to listen to the record, I'll give you a $50,000 advance if I don't have to listen to the record, I'll give you a $75,000 advance. And so the guy was like, I knew we had a hit record, so I took the $75,000. And so they Why? did that and put together that was, and that, this all became Jerry's first solo record, which was called City to City, which is the album that has Baker Street. But that's that seems so weird, like the way that wow. like you would get your stuff all set up like that. And then I guess Joe released a solo record around the same year, but it did have zero commercial success. And then he never did, any music again. That was it. Right. <laughs> and
0: that was- yeah, he was done. So that's why, you know, I don't know when it comes to sealer's wheel, who was the real brains behind the operation. Maybe it was a 50, 50 type thing, but I guess I just assume Jerry Rafferty because he actually had a career. <laughs> he kept his career going after and had, had some more hits, but that's probably wrong of me to assume that maybe Joe was, maybe Joe was the brains man. I, I don't know. Otherwise, as far as this goes, talking about Jerry in specific and not necessarily wanting to do anything other than just write good songs. I kind of see maybe what his other thing he liked to do was. (laughs) I think that thing was drink. Oh yeah. Considering in 2011, I believe that he died from liver failure from from years of alcohol abuse, right? Which that sucks, but probably had a good time. For, I, that's a terrible thing to say. He's probably having a lo- he's probably <laughs> well, having a lot it, of bad it, times. It was
2: probably okay at first, and then right. after years of chronic, it wasn't fun anymore. Yeah,
0: yeah <laughs> it's okay. probably yeah, yeah. the case. That's prob- but, that's what I meant.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, I know he didn't you mean sense. But
0: he was probably me. having fun in the '70s,
2: right? Well, I mean, dude, I mean, being at the top of the world in the '70s, where Every, like, every music place just seemed like you're selling records, you had tons of money. I can only imagine, like, you know, when that... Re- so I guess it's like when, he's, when that first record came out, Baker Street. And Baker Street was huge. He never toured America. There were plans for him to tour America. And I remember that I read something that the record label was begging him to come and play because it was, like, such a hit song and then that was followed up by... Uh, right down the line. I actually prefer that song to Baker Street if you're asking me. <laughs> but it's like, those are so, I mean, those are such massive songs that are like, you have to tour. And he's like, all right, well, I'll think about it. And I guess he came to America and did one interview. Okay. And then he did one interview as part of a promo trip. And then according to his daughter, I, I, I'm looking at this thing now, it says that she describes him as shy and introverted. And he suffered a panic attack in New York during a promo trip to launch the record. He was planning a tour of America, but was scared by the momentum he was generating and the kind of people his success attracted. He was very sensitive and had too much integrity to live that kind of life. He just canceled his U.S. tour and was unheard of, which was unheard of. And it says he was under pressure from his record company to carry on. And if he had, he could have had the realms of fame enjoyed by the likes of Elton John, but he chose not to. I don't think he ever regretted it. He knew it was the right decision.
0: Wow. Yeah. The guy had, you know, some anxiety issues or some sort of something mentally that didn't didn't allow him to, to keep doing it. And that that's really sad, you know? And uh, that probably explains the alcoholism or whatever. I, I, I will say that like, you know, the, your mind is a very fragile thing. Once again, just cause you're good at writing songs doesn't mean you're, that uh, you can't be affected by those sort of things. That's, that's obvious. Also, dude, I kind of feel like maybe 10 years ago, I would look at like rock stars and how so many of them got in, into drugs. And, and, and it was like everybody had a drug problem. It seemed like at one point or another, especially, you know, when you look at artists from the seventies and eighties and nineties, and I felt like I had this attitude, like, Oh my God, why would they just throw it all away on? But then as I've, I've gotten a little, a little older, I start to realize like, Oh, wait a second. These people had so much money and success that their life was probably just like a party all the time and it kind of makes a little more sense to me that 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 would happen especially if you had any underlying issues whether it be mentally or you know personal problems or anything like that it'd be the easiest thing in the world if you're getting huge royalty checks and advances from record labels to just spend so much money on booze and drugs and whatever and parties <laughs> that uh right. It completely makes sense to me now that that would happen. And it would would actually seem hard for that not to happen. You'd have to be like a very strong person to not just be like surrounded by beautiful people and a mansion and all the drugs you can do. I I, I mean, I don't know, man. It seems pretty obvious. So I'm pretty impressed by the people that made their way out of it, I guess. Right. Apparently... Jerry wasn't one of those people,
2: but I wonder, like you know, as we look upon the '70s or whatever here in 2020, of just what it was like in the music industry. If Jerry Rafferty, who you know we know of or can do that, but I don't know if he's like a household name. Who's to say? But he he sold 11 million albums in his career. Wow. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, so is that like an anomaly, or was that just like everybody back then has you know all that? And then like you said, to make it out of it is awesome. But it's just like, I just think of how much money must have been flowing around in there. Of course, there was nothing but drugs. Because what are you going to spend it on?
0: Right. And also, like, you, if you're talking about the 70s, you and I grew up in a time where you kind of learned about drugs being bad. <laughs> you know, from the time I was in first grade, I'm, before I even saw or knew what drugs were, someone was telling me, well, these are bad. And, right. and so like, no. yeah, right. So whether I wanted to do them later or not, like, I was warned, but if it's the 70s, you weren't learning about drugs in school, I don't think, and any long-term effects or addiction or anything like, yeah, maybe you were starting to see that. And I'm not I'm not under some impression that drug addiction hasn't been a thing for hundreds or you know, thousands of years. I'm not right. saying that. I'm just saying like as a young person that y- you aren't being taught those things as much completely proves my point wrong the fact that there's so much that drug addiction so rampant now even though we're taught about it but i'm just saying in the 70s you know that you didn't even have that like in the back of your head really i don't think so that makes sense and alcohol too i don't think that uh what i don't even know if when 21 drinking age was even established. It feels like in the seventies, that wasn't a thing yet. But I couldn't I think, wrong yeah, I think
2: that. that happened in the late seventies or early eighties. That was a whole thing where like the, the federal government was like, if you want our money, you have to raise your age.
0: Right. A whole other topic. I think that's bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, uh, yeah, if you can go fight in a war, you should be able to drink beer, I think. But right. Totally. Whole, whole other, whole other podcast. <laughs> <laughs> that's Steeler's will for the most part. I mean, 11 million albums though, man, that's, that's impressive. I right. wouldn't. Have, well, I think I, that
2: stat is between both Steeler's Wheel albums and his solo stuff. But, but even I so,
0: mean, but even yeah. so, man, like, okay, stuck in the. We're, we're This is a one-hit wonder podcast, so yeah, Steeler's Wheel had a couple other minor hits, but that's this is their only real hit. And then Jerry Rafferty, it's like okay, Baker Street, and that that whatever that walk down the line right, right, song, right, or whatever right it down is. the line. Right down the line, song like I don't even know that song.
2: You would know it. I you
0: know Baker it. Street. I think because of you. <laughs> I mean, I had heard it before, but I think you were the first person to refer to it as Baker Street. And also for anyone listening out there, uh, Jim, who manages Punchlining, comes on tour with us. I would always hear him in the shower with his <laughs> with his music playing in there, and always listening to the Yacht Rock station. So always hearing Baker Street blasting out of the. <laughs> of the bathroom so i'm just saying the dude didn't have that many hits to sell 11 million albums like that's that's insane i guess it was at a time where people bought music a lot
2: well there was no there was no spotify so you couldn't just go on go online and put it on it was you had to go get that record
0: how many how many records they sell because of that that artwork on the on the records (laughs) you know
2: i I guess it depends it's It's
0: pretty eye-catching
2: it's it's a perfect storm man you know 70s cool artwork drugs all over the place Yep. makes sense to me.
0: Yep. A catchy song. Uh, yeah. So Steeler's wheel makes sense to us as far as, you know, we both dug into the, uh, the back catalog some, and uh, I think that it's pretty. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't necessarily turn Steeler's wheel off if it was on. I don't know if I would necessarily put it on intentionally. I think you would. Yeah, you have, I have. but I would put this song on a playlist. No doubt about that. Nice. If we're talking about one hit, Thunder versus one-hit blunder when it comes to Steelers Wheel. I'll give them a Thunder.
2: Nice. I give them a Thunder, too. I think that, you know, overarchingly, there's not – there isn't another – there's not another stuck in the middle with you in the Steelers Wheel catalog. But at least the first album from front to back is worth the listen. It does the right thing in the sense of, like, it's got upbeat stuff. It kind of has a couple downer things. You know, it fits the right emotions. I could, I can really see people in the 70s getting behind it if they're just kind of like – melting into the couch or whatever i can see that happening right i think it's a solid listen yeah i think you
0: could turn that Steelers will album on and go this is 70s music play <laughs> <laughs> and and yes yes this is very much 70s music it's above average 70s music i would say i i
2: i don't mind it one bit
0: <laughs> nice yeah man so thanks for coming on the podcast
2: Dude, of course. I appreciate the opportunity to come in here. And I yeah. you know, I look forward to seeing you again in the near future.
0: Yeah, man. I know you were bummed. I know you were bummed we did a space hog episode without you. But, it's okay. Uh,
2: I did get well, to make a special appearance, so I got that's to, I true. feel like I got to I got to add all the space hog knowledge to that to that one that I could have brought as we were talking about it. But dude, this is great. I'm glad we got to talk about J.R.F.G., a great person of the Yacht Rock era. There's so many bands I'm sure that we can uncover through the history of uh, you know. One Hit Thunder. It's got plenty of episodes in the future for you to be getting that out to people.
0: Hell yeah, man.
1: This has been One Hit Thunder. One Hit Thunder is produced by Matt Kelly as part of the Geekscape Network and hosted by Chris Vefalios of the band's Punchline, Pack, and Another Cheetah. Underneath me, you're hearing Punchline's cover of Loser off the songs from 94 EP available on all streaming services. Check out Craft Service, the crowdfunding strategy agency ran by this week's guest, Jim, as well as our past guest and Chris's bandmate, Steve. Visit enjoycraftservices.com for more information. Let us know your thoughts on the show by emailing us at onehitthunderpodcast at gmail.com and make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to us on your favorite podcasting app. Tune in next week for another episode of One Hit Thunder.
0: On the TMEP show, we get guests like Nancy Wilson from Heart, Jeremiah Frates from the Lumineers, and Modern Family's Julie Bowen to tell
2: us things they may have only shared with their therapist, clergy, or a TMZ stringer. So join us on Too Much Effing Perspective. That's E-F-F-I-N-G Perspective. The only podcast you crank up to 11. Hey, you. Do you have any plans this year?
1: 020-D.com soundtalentmedia.com or on your favorite podcast app.